0: As Jake said, welcome. We're so glad you're here, and welcome to this time of worship with Downtown Presbyterian. If you and I haven't met, my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Jake Patton. It's leading us in worship. Another pastor. Um, it's typically our custom or, or our rule that when we come to the sermon in the worship service, that we're working our way through a series, and now, I like to say this occasionally, that there's a, there's a reason for that. The reason that we like to preach through books of the Bible or, or maybe just through a small portion of, of the Bible is that it helps keep us honest. If you know, As I've said before, if every Monday I or Jake or Jonathan or Adam just sort of woke up and said, hmm, what do I want to preach on this Sunday? There's a lot of passages I don't think we would ever reach for just because they're difficult or they're confusing and other things would come to mind. But when we have to preach through things, that kind of hopefully keeps us honest. But I'm gonna let this morning be something of an exception to the rule and I wanna do just sort of a standalone because our congregation has really experienced quite a bit of loss in the past few weeks and really the past year. We've experienced loss and by loss I mean loss to death. We've experienced that before, but I really in twelve years here I've never seen so many losses as as we've seen recently. And I think with our demographic, increasingly what we're going to see is is, uh, people losing parents. And we've even seen that in the last few weeks. But over the last year, we've had more than once the loss of a baby. Um, We recently had someone in her 30s lose her brother. He's two years older. He was in his 30s. So just kind of across the board. And I, I wanted to just hit the pause button and reach for a text to think about, death and grief and mourning. Uh, I, I want to say on the front end, what I'm doing this morning is super basic. I'm not, I don't think what I'm about to say or put before you is a deep, deep reflection on it because time just doesn't allow. I, really, what I'm doing this morning are ABCs. If we were talking about nutrition, I'm giving you the equivalent of wouldn't it be great if you drank water more than Coke and ate some plants instead of processed foods all the time? I mean, I'm giving you... This is sort of 101. But I wanted to reach for this passage, in, and we're going to look in this passage in Ecclesiastes. This is from the Old Testament, and Ecclesiastes is considered one of the wisdom books, like Proverbs, books like that. It's, uh, the, the writer identifies himself as the teacher... It's kind of a hard term to translate, but the teacher seems to work pretty well. At numerous points in the book, the teacher, things that he says about himself and his life and what he's done, it sure sounds like King Solomon, but the way he presents himself is the teacher. So I'm just going to refer to the writer that way. But one thing that he's already said in this book is that uh, there's a time for everything. And you may have even heard this passage before. I had an aunt who this. I've got it at my house that, you know, there's a time for this, there's a time for that. There's a time to embrace, there's a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to pick up stones, there's a time to throw away stones. One of the things that he has acknowledged already in Ecclesiastes, it's in chapter 3, is that there is a time to dance. There's a time to dance, there's a time to laugh. And I'm so glad there is a time for that. I love to laugh. I used to dance. I can bring in eyewitnesses sometime to talk about that. But, but there's a time to mourn. There really is a time to mourn. And so that's already been broached, but he picks up that theme in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So let's look at what, what he has to say. This is a short passage. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is... Is in the house of mirth. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we always need your words. We need your words to show us what to do. We need your words to comfort us. We need your words to rebuke us or challenge us. We need your words when we're confused. We need your words when we think that we have clarity. We just need all your words. So now would you give us even these words and give us ears to hear them. Pray for all of us, but Father, we pray in particular for those who are mourning, for those who are in in grief, in loss, that you would especially open up your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, mid-August and... A lot of people are ramping up for college, and some people are ramping up for college for the first time. And I was thinking about this. Uh, we're a year away from that in our family, but we know folks in that window of time right now, even some folks in our church. And really, when, when, you're, when you're making the transition from, all right, I've finished senior year of high school, I'm going to start college, even though you may not do it in the exact same sequence as other people, and you know, we all sort of put our personality stamp on things that we do, there's a sequence of, I don't know how many things, 10, 15, 20 things that you have to do to start your freshman year. You know, you, you, you do all the paperwork, all the paperwork, you do financial aid stuff, uh, you go visit, and probably have a freshman orientation, I missed my freshman orientation, kind of think it threw me off in college, you, uh, you go, you start buying all the stuff, you shop, probably falls on mom, but somebody shops, and you buy all this stuff for the room, and you know, stuff that they're going to look at, and then, you know, stuff like cleaning supplies that will come back from college unused, (laughs) and you, uh, you know, and there's interaction maybe with the freshman roommate, and there's trips up there, and then finally there's the logistics of actually moving up, even if the student just does it herself, himself, get the stuff there. Or maybe the whole family comes, and there's goodbyes, and then there's first class, and just, I mean, but we probably could lay out, again, I don't know, 15, 20 things that, even if you don't sequence it exactly the same, or, the, you know, this college has a little twist on it from this one, you sort of know there's this checklist I have to go through to go from, just really in a few months, to go from being a high school senior to a college freshman, and, and I can find out what to do. But not everybody goes to college. Not everybody here went to college. Everybody, unless you die very young, and that's not you, you're going to lose someone, and you'll be left behind. And after the basics that we do, just the days right after a death, and then I'd say max two weeks into it, after that, we don't know what to do. We, we don't know the steps. And it's interesting, we're a bit of a cultural anomaly in that way, that different cultures over different centuries, they weren't identical, but they had the things you did. They had the rituals to walk you through the process of loss and grief and mourning. And in our cultural moment, 21st century America, We largely don't know what to do. I don't know if you saw the quote on the front of the bulletin, but let me read it. Church funerals, when they tell the truth, not only remember lovingly the lives of the departed, they also preach the gospel. They proclaim that Jesus is risen and insist insist that those who died in Him shall be risen too. What churches often do less well is grieve. We lack a ritual for the long and tiring process that is sorrow and loss. A friend of mine whose husband recently died put it like this. For about two weeks, the church was really the church, really awesomely, wonderfully the church. Everyone came to the house, baked casseroles, carried Kleenex. But then the two weeks ended, and so did the consolation calls. While you, the mourner, are still bawling your eyes out and slamming fists into the wall, everyone else... Understandably, forgets and goes back to their normal lives and you find, after all those crowds of people, that you are left alone. You are without the church and without a church vocabulary for what happens to the living after the dead are dead. And, and that phrase really jumped off the page at me because appropriately, and she acknowledges this, something that we talk about As the church, when there's death and when there's loss, we talk about the resurrection. We talk about what happens to us after death. What what did Jesus accomplish for His people for when we die? And we've got to talk about that. But what we typically don't have a church vocabulary for is what does the person do who's left behind when the dead are dead? I want to look at this passage, and again, I I just want to say uh, this is. Anything I, that I'm saying is pretty much 101, but I want to say something. And in this short little passage, twice, the writer, the teacher, he refers to the house of mourning. The house of mourning. And I, this is written in Hebrew. I was curious about what term does he use for mourning? And when I looked it up in a, in a sort of standard Hebrew reference, I, I was glad I did because here's how it defined it. It said that word for mourning could be translated uh, or understood as prolonged weeping and grief. Prolonged weeping and grief. And this is, this is important because the house, why does he say the house of mourning? We're, we're way, 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 way late on the scene and pretty much, again, kind of globally, historically, we're an anomaly that a corpse is in this sort of neutral building like a funeral home. The corpse, historically, would be in the home or, let's say, in the village or the town. And as far as I know, even in Jewish practice, the body was not brought into the synagogue, like we would bring a casket into a church building. The real heavy lifting, especially initially, of mourning was the body is in the house. It's the, so that. It, in what the teacher is saying, that's a metaphor for it really stepping into the space. Stepping into the arena of the hard work of grieving. And not just for a couple of days. And this is where I feel like I need to nudge on us. Because what's going, what might come to mind, and for some of you this is very recent. What might come to mind is like what we call a visitation. But that's the importance of understanding. That this Hebrew term means prolonged weeping and grief. Past what we call the visitation, past what we call the funeral service, past what we call the graveside, and on and on. How long? And the Scripture doesn't command. It doesn't give a stipulation. But but here's a snapshot. If you lose someone you love, which some of you have recently, if you just wept and cried and your heart was broken for two solid weeks I think most of the people in your life in our cultural moment would think that you're coming unglued that what you're doing is unhealthy and by contrast at the end of Deuteronomy when Moses died the Israelites wept this Hebrew term wept and mourned for 30 days at the end of two weeks they would have said 16 more days to go We have our cultural strengths. I just would have to say this is not one of ours. So we need to think about mourning and grief. Um, the, the teacher says there's at least two things you find in the house of mourning. Again, whether, whether or not it's an, a literal house, just to step into that hard work. I'm almost saying that like a, a counselor or a therapist might say that. You've got to do this hard work. There's two things that you find from going in that house. And I'm sure you find a lot more, but let's at least look at these two things. The first one is this in the house of mourning, and this should be pretty obvious from the passage, you find wisdom. You find wisdom from being willing to go into the house of mourning. What what is wisdom? Biblically? It's not intelligence. It's not book smarts. Wisdom is competence to navigate the realities and the complexities of your life. Wisdom is competence to navigate the realities and the complexities of your life. And it's interesting, Ecclesiastes, as I said earlier, is part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. In this book, it talks about wisdom, talks about the futility of just living by appearances. He says that in the house of mourning, you actually find and can obtain wisdom. Now, look at the passage again. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. And this surprised me because for some reason... It took me reading this over and over and over before I saw what it said. I think what I heard was, The heart of the wise is willing to go into the house of mourning. And that's not what it says. It it seems to say that the wise man or the wise woman, when they leave the actual house, their heart stays behind in it. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. But go back to verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Now, if you can get wisdom, and we all need wisdom, I mean, we could just go through this room individually and say, what is it in your life where there's not just a clear-cut answer about what to do? There's not just a clear-cut biblical command or verse to just go... I mean, it's almost never the situation that someone comes to you and says, hey... Let's rob a bank. What do you think? You know, a clear no. Our lives aren't like that. Things are gray. They're confusing. Maybe it's deciding between two good things. I mean, don't you feel the need for wisdom? Don't you feel the need for more wisdom all the time? So if you can get it in that house, why would we not go in that house? But, but we don't like going in that house. Why? Why? This is not an exhaustive list, but I'm going to throw out two reasons. And most of us are never going to say this out loud. I don't even know that we think it. It may just be that we feel it. But the first one is this. I'm not going in there because it's going to hurt. I can do a visitation. But I cannot weep and weep and weep and weep. It's going to hurt. So, all right, true or false? When you go in the house of morning. it's going to hurt. True or false? True. But this is where it's important to make a biblical distinction. And I'm, this is not original to me, but it's been helpful to me when somebody pointed it out to me. There's a difference between hurt and harm. It will hurt. There are exercises that when done... Properly, when when done correctly. They, They can hurt, especially the next day or two. But they're good for you. But they hurt. But they don't harm you. Going into the house of mourning will not harm you. But it does hurt. We don't like to hurt. That's one. But the second one, and we sure won't say this one. Again, I don't, I don't think we even so much think it as just sort of feel it. And I think it's especially when there's a loss of someone, and I'm not thinking great, great aunt, and not that great, great aunts don't matter, but I'm talking about really your immediate circle, immediate family or family of origin or spouse uh, or close, close friend. When we lose someone that we, we know that we should have been closer with, and maybe we, we wish that we were closer with, but the fact of the matter is that we just were not close. And they die. And we lose them. Uh, you know, we, we do the visitation, we do the funeral, we do the graveside, but really we might feel like, I, I'm not going to expend a lot of tears and emotional energy on this because, again, I don't think many people will say this, but our insides are our impulses are, it wasn't that big a deal. And the problem with that is this. When we experience loss and we don't grieve it, and I mean grieve it, weep and mourn for our loss. When we don't do that, what we're saying is, it didn't matter. And the problem is, our insides know that yes, it did. Yes, it did matter. Now, if anyone is sitting here right now and they're thinking, okay, you're talking about like conscious level of thought and your insides, that sounds like you're just kind of getting this from psychology. I think psychology recognizes that. But think about this. When King David did some big splashy sins, adultery and murder and all that, He didn't deal with it. Just kind of said, hey, nothing to see here, folks. And I got a busy life as a king and lots of work to do in the kingdom, full steam ahead. And didn't deal with it before God or with the people who were affected by it. And God confronted him. And then he had to deal with it. And he wrote psalms about it. And one of the things he says in a psalm is, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Now, what did he just tell you? Yeah, I could get on with life. I could keep being king. I could keep being competent as a leader and as a warrior. But my insides knew I had not dealt with it. And my insides knew it mattered. And you're acting like it didn't matter. And my bones wasted away. It's that I had to do something. And just along those lines, let me give you another biblical example that maybe is the most famous funeral in the Bible. And what would that be? The death of Lazarus. Famous miracle. Lazarus was Jesus' close friend. Jesus had close friends besides the disciples. And He was actually close to that whole family. Lazarus and His sisters, Martha and Mary, they were His friends. Well, Lazarus dies. And Jesus doesn't get there for a few days. And when He comes, there's finally this scene where He comes to the tomb... And he looks around, you've got all these people weeping. You've got Mary and Martha and friends and this this village community affected by his death and they're crying. And Jesus looks around, what does he do? Because you know, he's about to raise him from the dead. Does Jesus step into that scene and go, You're about to see the most awesome thing you've ever seen? I'm about to make the saddest afternoon of your life into the most awesome afternoon of your life. Watch this. Is that what he does? What does the passage say? What's the easiest Bible verse to memorize? Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Because his friend died. And he's watching the effect that not just generic death, but my friend's death has on the people that are, that are inside of him, that he cares about, and his heart breaks. Why does his heart break? Because it matters. And he weeps, even as he's about to raise him from the dead. He weeps. Here's what happens. This has already happened to some of you, but if it hasn't, I'm going to make a prediction that this will happen to you. When you've been in the house of mourning and you come back out, in pretty short order, you're going to be somewhere and you're going to hear just kind of southern chit-chat, like you're going to be at a coffee shop or some public place and you're going to hear people do or, or at church. And you're going to hear people doing this thing that we do. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. And you're going to want to scream, No, we're not. This world is broken. Like the poet said, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. You're going to want to scream it from the rooftop. Now, the trick in that moment is not to get self-righteous. Because you were probably going, hey, a couple of weeks ago. But what has changed about you? You went into the house of mourning. And you're becoming wiser. Because you stepped back out and you looked at the world and you realized... You know, we, we go through life thinking, I, I think for myself. I think I'm largely unaffected by advertising. Right. We, yeah. We're unaffected by what we're ingesting all day long. And what we're ingesting all day long is kind of saying to us, you know what, this is a happy, shiny place, and it's getting happier and shinier all the time. And by the way, you won't die. And when you step out of the house of mourning, you will know that's not I mentioned Moses earlier. Did you know that Moses wrote one of the psalms? Psalm 90. It's not by David. It's by Moses. And one of the things that... Mo- oh God, perfect guy to say this. One of the things he says, Psalm 90, verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of what? Wisdom. When you go into the house of mourning and you're living... Lay it to heart. Here's what one writer said. This is from a book. Now, this is kind of gallows humor, but this is a great title. It's a book called Talking About Death Won't Kill You. And she uses the image of somebody hanging. They're on a climbing expedition, and they're hanging like from a cliff. And she says this, Hanging on the edge of a precipice engulfed by terror is not the time to, or place to learn about emergency rock climbing procedures. You have to learn about them before you start the expedition. Likewise, we have to start learning about death now while we are still healthy, before we are blinded by denial and fighting valiantly for hope. When you and I are lying in hospice, is not the time to start thinking about, oh yeah, I'm mortal. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. And I have life right now, but I am not promised tomorrow. I am descended from Adam, and I will die. It's wisdom because now you're now you're navigating real life. You're not navigating a commercial. You're navigating real life. But there's this other thing that we find in the um, in the house of mourning. This one's a little bit more surprising. This is wisdom literature. You find wisdom there. But, but this one's more surprising to hear is that in the house of mourning, we find gladness. Gladness. How, how can it say that? Look, look at the bookends of verses 2 and 4. There's, this, there's a contrast in both verses. Verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. So here's the contrast. You've got a house. And I think feasting is a great thing in the Bible. But you've got, wow, this is a place where there's just, it's fun and there's food and there's drink. And I mean, don't picture like a boring Thanksgiving dinner with kinfolk that you don't get along with. I mean, like just food and drinking and, you know, the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. And people are, you know, like just, just having a great time. Then in verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Yeah, this is a place where people are laughing, they're crying, they're laughing so hard, it's your favorite funny people. I told the eight thirty service, I do think I know some of the funniest people in the United States. They're all there at the House of Mirth. And you've got the teacher saying, Both of those, both of those, are not where your heart needs to stay. And neither of those ultimately can make you glad. But it's the man or the woman who's gone into this space and wept and mourned and grieved and who takes on a sad face who gets what? Verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. You know, I've, I've mentioned this, uh, this writer and speaker before, Brene Brown. Brene Brown was sort of unknown till a few years ago. She's, a, um, she's an academician, and her area of, of academics is social work, but I mean, really psychology. Ph.D., teaches in the Houston, Texas area, and she was invited to do a TED Talk. You may have seen these online TED Talks. So several years ago, she gave a TED Talk about the fruit of this research that she was doing. And this research was about the fact that like, human beings are just made for connection. And as Christians, we should be going, I, I could have told you that from Genesis 1. We are made for deep connection. But in, as she's coming to it as a researcher, she said, I kept bumping into this thing that just shut down connection. And I interviewed person after person after person, went through all this paperwork and data, and I kept hitting this thing that shuts down connection, and I finally realized that the thing I was bumping into is shame, And so what she advocates for from her research and in this talk is vulnerability. To really be open with one's heart and to press into pain. The things that we're ashamed of, to name it and own it and and to press into it. Then she talks about, that hurts. And we don't like to hurt, so we do other things. And so she talks about what are ways that we do an end run around vulnerability. One of the things she says specifically is that we deaden ourselves. That's not new information. That's, that's not new data. But what, she makes a great point. She says, you can't selectively deaden one part of yourself. In other words, I'm sad about that thing in my life, so I'm going to... Use alcohol this way, or drugs this way, or painkillers this way, or food this way, or porn this way, or whatever. And I'm just going to kind of deaden that pain, but the rest of my life I'll be hitting on all cylinders. And she says, we're not made that way. You can't selectively deaden, so what you end up doing is you deaden all of yourself. Now, what... By the way, she... She gave that talk and she told her husband the next day because she knew that the video of this lecture would be posted. She said, I'm so scared that like, we're going to look up and a thousand people will have watched this video. She would just kind of like had a, a, a vulnerability hangover the next day. I think last time I checked, there were close to 30 million views because it struck a chord with a lot of people. What does that have to do with this? Here's the thing. What is the grief that you and I most need to do If you've not recently lost someone that you love, what is the grief that we must do? It's to grieve over ourselves. Let me read you a verse from the New Testament. And we don't talk about it a lot because I think in many ways we don't know what to do with this verse. But this is from the New Testament. James chapter 4 verse 9 Speaking to Christians, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. He's not speaking to people who have all lost immediate family members to death recently. He's saying categorically to people who believe in the Lord and believe that in Jesus, there is salvation for my sin. There is cleansing for my guilt. The writer, uh, James says this, Be wretched and mourn and weep. And all he's doing is echoing the prophets. And You know, for most of us, we don't know the prophets. But he, here's one example. The prophet Joel, he said this, and this is such an incredible image. In that cultural setting... If, if you did lose somebody, if you, if you were going through loss, one thing you might do is you tear, and th- this is still done today in some cultures, you tear your clothes. Just a complete kind of undoing, like, I, I am, my heart is breaking. So you break your clothes. And apparently, in Joel's setting, as God was confronting things, people were sort of like outwardly acting, like they were convicted about sin. And they would tear their clothes like, oh, we have sinned against the Lord And God, through the prophet Joel, says this, chapter 2. Return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. Tear your heart. Because the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Turn to me. If you have never grieved your sin before, you may be sitting here feeling like I don't know how to. Die. I don't know how to get that upset about my sin. The house of mourning is like a gymnasium. Because what do you see when you go into a house of mourning? Like for instance, and I have no particular person in mind as I say this, okay? But for example, let's say you lose a sibling you weren't very close to that sibling. What are you going to do? And the easy way out is to do the visitation, do the funeral, do the graveside, return letters, nice messages, whatever. But then the narrative is just kind of like, yeah, we just weren't that close, and you you suppress it, and your insides know something's very wrong. But what would it be like to go into the house of mourning? To go into the house of mourning would be to go in and say siblings are supposed to be close and they brought what they brought to the table and I brought what I brought to the table but we were supposed to be close and we're not and now we can't be because they're gone and I regret it and you weep but then you take that that regret out from the house into the rest of your life and you look at the whole of your life and the community around you and you work this muscle and what is it enable you to do to say, man, what would my life be like if I really loved God? I mean, how much better it would be for the people around me if I really loved God and was close to Him and loved them? And how, much more, how different my life would be if I loved you more than I love my own comfort, but I'm not, and you regret it, and your heart breaks. Because if your heart breaks that way, do you know what Jesus says to people whose hearts break that way? It's actually something you've heard before, and you usually hear it at funerals. But He didn't primarily say this about funerals. You know what Jesus says? Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Are you heartbroken over your? Do you grieve? Say, I just, I just regret what I've done. I regret what I've said. I regret how I used them. You bring your heartbreak and you weep and you mourn. He says, I'll comfort you. I'll cleanse you. I'll restore you. And so irony of ironies, by going into the house of mourning and taking what you learned there, working that muscle there and coming out to the rest of your life and grieving our sin. But turning to a Savior, what does He end up doing? Ironically, He makes your heart glad. Let me me say this, and then one other thing. We pray in this church for revival. Not a a revival meeting this Friday at 7 p.m. A work of the Holy Spirit that is special and felt in our midst. There is no revival without heartbreak read any account of a revival from church history. There is no revival without heartbreak individually or collectively. Let it in. Or walk into it. Let me end with this. Um, I was reading the obituary that came on the heels of one of the recent losses in our midst and um, this obituary, it mentioned um, sayings that this person would say. One of the sayings, speaking of college starting and college drop-off, the saying was, I've, I've actually heard this one before, work for four years and play for 40, or play for four years and work for 40. And I know that's not a perfect equation. It doesn't work always work out exactly that way, but like, like a saying does, it's, just, it's trying to get at something in a little bit of space is, hey... As you as you if you're going to college, as you do that, deny yourself now and reap the benefit. Reap reap what you sow. Or indulge yourself. And reap what you sow. Let me say this negatively and then joyfully. If if you will not go into the house of mourning, not only for those that we love, but for our sins. You reap grief. You end up being swallowed by grief from which you can never reemerge. But when we enter the house of mourning, not just over death and loss, but over me, you know what? The Bible says there is a house of mirth. There is a house of feasting. It's just not yet. Mourn now. Live in that house. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, in many ways, this leaves us with questions because we still don't have the roadmap of how to grieve. What do we do one month later? what do we do two years later? We don't have the roadmap and we don't have the rituals, so we especially say, please help us. We pray that we would step into great sadness because your Son has already gone before us into that deep sadness and has overcome death and sin. Please tenderize us toward each other. Please help us to weep with those who weep. Heal us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.